Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John 5. Uh, John 5. We are rushing right through this gospel at breakneck speed. Um, and it will feel like that today, actually, because we're going to be looking at John 5, verses 1 through 18. And uh, my goal this morning is to cover these verses. And if you want to give a title to the message, uh, it would be Jesus Stirs Up Trouble. Jesus Stirs Up uh, Trouble. I'm sure many of you uh, have watched um, some of the episodes of The Chosen. How many of you have seen any of those uh, episodes? My wife and I have seen uh, all of them, I think at least uh, twice, and have been blessed by uh, them in a number of ways. On my iPhone home screen, I have three clips from The Chosen, and one of them is the final scene of the final episode of season one, and in that scene, Jesus has just revealed himself as the Messiah to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she is uh, running toward the city to tell everyone in the city of Sychar about uh, Jesus, who has told her everything that she has ever done. Peter is beside himself in this scene with joy over the fact that Jesus actually revealed himself to this woman and told her who he was. And Peter is excited that they're now going to be sticking around in the city of Sychar for a little while to tell others about about Jesus. And at this point, uh, Jesus and his disciples begin walking toward the city of Sychar, and the camera captures this in an epic, slow-motion, prolonged sequence accompanied by a catchy tune and a voice singing the following words. I'll not sing them to you this morning, but the words are, throw me like a stone in the water, watch the mud rise up. Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter. Pour me in your cup. Who'd have known we'd bring trouble? Trouble's going to find you here. Trouble. 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 That's not a song we're going to be singing on a Sunday morning anytime soon, but I really like it. On some Sunday mornings before I preach... I will go to my office and watch the clip of that scene and will take in the lyrics of that song and I will then ask God to help me to go to the pulpit and to make trouble for him. The irony of that song and that episode of The Chosen is that there's no indication of any whiff of trouble that Jesus encounters in Samaria other than the obvious trouble that Jesus causes to Satan's kingdom. But as we come into our passage for today, we find Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem where he truly does stir up trouble, trouble that results in him being persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders who now want to kill him. Toward the end of our text for today, we read these words in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And then we read these words in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And those words mark a very significant inflection point in the narrative of John's gospel, serving as the first dark cloud of what will become a gathering storm that will culminate in the cross. What we see in our passage today is the beginning of trouble 
for Jesus that will build through the coming chapters and culminate in his crucifixion on the cross. And as you hear that, uh, and you learn of the murderous rage that the religious leaders had against Jesus in our passage today, your question might be, what horrible thing did Jesus do to provoke this kind of murderous hostility against him? Well, I will tell you, but you need to brace yourselves because it's truly awful what Jesus did. Parents, you might even want to cover your children's ears if you wish to protect their innocence. Whatever you do, do not gasp aloud when I tell you what Jesus did. Here's what he did, and I almost shudder to speak the words. He healed a man. You gasped aloud. He healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to pick up his sleeping bag and to walk. That's what Jesus did. And as we look at our passage this morning, the way we'll break it down, as you see on your notes, is we'll observe seven developments in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man. Seven developments in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man on the Sabbath. The first of these developments, we can word this way, Jesus encounters a sick man lying by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus encounters or he finds a sick man lying by the pool of Bethesda. Observe what happens in verses 1 and 2. After these things, in other words, his time after his time in uh, Samaria and in Galilee, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you learn that the sheep gate is on the northern side of the city of Jerusalem. And here we learn that by this gate is a pool called Bethesda, which had five porticos or covered porches. This particular spot has been excavated by archaeologists, and if what has been excavated represents this pool that John is describing, then imagine two large pools that together would form the length of a football field with a covered porch between the two pools and then covered porches along the periphery of every side of the pool, making a total of five covered porches. As for these covered porches by the pool, John tells us the following in verse 3. In these covered porches lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. The question is, why would so many sick and disabled people be assembled on the porches around this pool, we'll look at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, where we're told that these who were suffering from these various conditions were waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, depending on the translation that you are using, some of you will notice that these words that I just read to you are set off in some way to indicate that there is significant doubt about whether these words were actually written by the Apostle 
John. In fact, the most ancient or the oldest Greek manuscripts of John's gospel do not have these words uh, in the text, which makes it highly likely that these words were not written by the Apostle John, but are uninspired words added later by a scribe to help the reader to understand the story better. That said, there is broad enough manuscript support for these words in some of the manuscripts and ancient translations of John's gospel and among the early church fathers to let us know that these words do represent a very ancient explanation of why these sick people are gathered on these porches surrounding this pool. So understood in this way, John the Apostle himself is not saying that an actual angel of the Lord came down and stirred up the waters, but these words do represent what people believed at the time to be the case. The likelihood is that this pool was fed, in, at least in part, by a subterranean spring, which would occasionally bubble forth and cause the waters of the pool to be stirred up in some way. And it seems that people attributed this troubling of the waters on occasion to an angel of the Lord as a sign that healing was now available to the first person who would get into the pool. And it is this belief that explains why so many sick people are gathered here on this occasion. And among all those sick people who are gathered in verse 5, John says, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Imagine that. For that length of time, the language John uses does not have to mean that this man had been at this pool for 38 years, but we will learn in the coming verses that this man has been at this pool long enough to be frustrated by his inability to experience healing from the pool. It is upon this scene that Jesus, the Messiah, comes, and it seems that he walks through the crowd of the sick who are assembled around this pool until he comes upon this particular man and engages him directly, which brings us to the second development in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man. Number two, Jesus converses with the man about his desire to be made well. Jesus converses with the man about his desire to be made well. Observe what happens in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? And as you hear Jesus ask that question, you might think, is that a silly question to ask a man who's gathered by this pool? Well, I think Jesus is asking this man this question because he fully intends to heal him, but Jesus does not want to heal this man without this man's consent. I also think Jesus is asking this man this question to get him to think about whether or not he really, truly wants to be made well. On one level, you would think that any sick person would want to be made well, but that is not always the case. Some people make a cottage industry out of their various ailments, And they so allow their ailments to shape their sense of identity that they would miss those ailments if they were taken away from them. 
Some people might actually like the benefits of having a debilitating condition because it excuses them from all sorts of responsibilities that would come with being healthy and whole, or because they've grown attached to the sympathy and the charity that others are showing to them. Back in Bible times and even to this very day, some who are reduced to begging because of a debilitating condition can make a pretty good living as a beggar, which would be taken away from them if they were made whole. So this is actually a genius question that Jesus is asking this man in which he seeks to get this man to think about whether or not he really truly wishes to be physically made well. And I think Jesus' question even goes further than this. We're going to get the very strong indication later in this story that this man was in this physical condition as a result of sin in his life. So in asking this man this question, Jesus is wanting him to think about How much does he really want to be made whole in spirit, soul, and body? Think about yourself, for example, and imagine that you're suffering from a physical ailment of some sort that you know is the result of some cherished, sinful practice in your life. If Jesus were to come up to you and say, would you like to be made well? How would you interpret his question? And what answer would you give him? Well, observe in verse 7 how this man responds to Jesus' question. The text says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Some commentators find a whole lot of fault with this man's answer to Jesus' question. The commentator D.A. Carson is especially hard on this man with this answer, describing this man's answer as, and I quote, the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question, unquote. Whatever you think of this man's answer, it is interesting to note that this man is not answering Jesus' question directly because evidently he feels that his presence at the pool is answer enough. After all, why else would he be at the pool? In his mind, for Jesus to ask him this question would be the equivalent of you approaching a sick person in the emergency room of a hospital and asking them if they would like to be made well. They would probably look at you like you're crazy for asking that question. That's why they're there. And that's probably a little of how this man is feeling here also. Of course he wants to be made well. That's why he's at the pool. But listen again to what he says to Jesus in verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And that's his answer. And notice that in his answer, he is pointing the finger of blame for his ongoing condition in two directions. First of all, he complains that there is no one to put him into the pool when the water is stirred up. I'm sure he had a list of people who should have been there to put him in the pool when the water was stirred up, but whoever was on that list, they weren't there for him when he needed them. And secondly, he says, and while I am coming, another steps down before me. Here, he's blaming the other people at the pool. It's these other people who are here at this pool, who are privileged with greater strength and mobility 
than I have who are keeping me from obtaining the healing that I need, and that's why I am sick right now and still in this condition. Again, we will learn later in this story that this man is suffering from his debilitating condition because of sin in his life, but he doesn't, in his answer, bring up the role that his own sin is playing in his condition. He doesn't bring that up at all. In his mind, his problem is other people who are either not there for him when he needs them, or it's the people who shove their way in front of him to get into the pool before he can. Ultimately, what this man says to Jesus is hardly a satisfying answer, but it's enough of a segue for the merciful Jesus to now be the man who is there to help this man. In verse 7, this man said, I have no man. And now Jesus intends to be that man who will help him only in a way that this man would have never expected. And this brings us to the third development in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man. And we can word it this way straight from the text, Jesus heals the man. Jesus heals the man and tells him to get up, pick up his pallet, and walk. Observe what Jesus does in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. By the way, the pallet is not like we think of a pallet today. This is a mat of some sort or like a mat of straw that a person would kind of unroll and lay on to sleep and then roll up and carry on their back or their shoulder, probably a sleeping bag is a close equivalent to this, uh, if you want the visual for that. But one of the benefits, when you look at what Jesus says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk, one of the benefits of being lame as this man is, is that no one can ever make you carry your sleeping bag. But here Jesus gives this man this responsibility if this man will take it. In telling this man to pick up his pallet or sleeping bag, Jesus is telling this man that he will be leaving this place today and he won't be coming back. Observe what happens in verse 9. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. There's some things worth pointing out here. First of all, we learn once again that there is no sickness, no matter how long it has endured, that is any match for Jesus. Even a 38-year debilitating condition. Secondly, we learn that whenever Jesus gives you a command, his commands always come with the promise of the wherewithal to perform those commands that he gives. So if you want to know what you are capable of doing as a Christian, just read the commands of Jesus to you as a believer and Get excited as you read those commands because those are telling you what you're able to do and the strength that he gives you. We see this truth on display here. Jesus speaks to a man who was lame for 38 years and he tells him to get up. And you know what? The man is able to get up and stand on his feet. Jesus tells him to pick up his pallet and this man is able to pick up his pallet as Jesus commanded him. Jesus tells this man who hasn't walked for 38 years 
to walk. And you know what? This man is immediately able to walk as Jesus commanded him. If you are a believer in Jesus, and Jesus commands you as a believer to do something that maybe you have never done in your life, or you haven't done for decades, you can be sure that you can do whatever he commands you to do in the strength that he provides. On another front here in this passage, we see the amazing power of Jesus, not only to heal this man of his malady, but also to restore him immediately to full strength. Hypothetically, let's say that this man suffered from paralysis from the waist down, and he had been in this condition for almost four decades. And imagine through some miracle of medicine, this man could be healed of whatever it was that was causing his paralysis. That healing alone would not mean that he can just get up and walk the moment after the healing takes place. Think about how atrophied his muscles would be after 38 years. Think about how complicated it would be to execute the mechanics of walking when you haven't walked for 38 years. But this is not the kind of limited healing that Jesus provides for this man. Jesus heals him of his ailment, and he infuses this man's muscles with life and vitality and with strength, and gives strength and mobility to this man's tendons and ligaments such that this man is able to pick up his pallet and immediately begin to walk the moment after he is healed of a 38-year ailment. As one commentator says, how much physical therapy did this man require after the disease left his body? How many days of working out before his strength returned? None. The words of Jesus brought total and complete restoration immediately. And here's what's amazing. We're going to see as the passage unfolds that Jesus does this miracle for this man at a moment when this man does not even know who Jesus is. As the coming verses are going to make clear to us, which means that Jesus does this miracle for this man without this man exercising any faith in Jesus at all. Many miracles Jesus performed throughout his ministry involved the exercise of faith on the part of the person who was being healed, but this is one of those cases when the person exercise no faith in Jesus at all because he doesn't even know who Jesus is. And we'll find that out in the coming verses, which raises the question, why does Jesus do this miracle for this man? Well, for one, he cares about this man. He cares about the physical and spiritual well-being of this man. And we're going to see Jesus circling back to this man and tending to his spiritual condition shortly. But there's another reason, too, that Jesus chooses to heal this man on this occasion that we learn about in verse 9. At the very end of verse 9, look at the text, we see these words. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. And this brings us to the fourth Development in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man. Number four, the Jewish religious leaders scold or rebuke the man for carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. The Jewish religious leaders scold this man or rebuke this man for carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. Verse nine ends 
with the words, now it was the Sabbath on that day, and given that fact, observe what happens beginning in verse 10. So the Jews, and by the way, in John's gospel, that expression, the Jews, is code for the Jewish religious leaders. So the Jewish religious leaders, John says, were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Seriously? (laughs) This is how they respond after seeing a man who hasn't walked in 38 years, walking around and carrying his pallet. They see a man walking after 38 years of lameness, and what do they say to him? It's the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Wow. You must know that there was nothing in the Old Testament law that prohibited anyone from carrying their sleeping bag on the Sabbath. In the Old Testament law, God tells the Jews to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy and to rest from their labors in recognition of how God rested from his creative work on the seventh day of creation. We know from what Jesus says elsewhere that God created the Sabbath day to be a blessing for mankind, a day of worship, a day in which man can take a break from his normal labors by which he sought to make a living. We learn in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, that the Sabbath was a shadow that pointed to Christ. But over the centuries, the Jewish religious leaders, the rabbis, took the Old Testament instructions regarding the Sabbath, and they identified 39 different kinds or categories of work that they interpreted the text as prohibiting on the Sabbath day. And one of those 39 categories had to do with things that are carried from one place to another. According to their regulations, they were so persnickety about carrying things or picking up things that a person was not even allowed, a Jew was not allowed to even wear false teeth on the Sabbath for fear that those teeth might fall out of their mouth and that person would have to pick them up and thus work on the Sabbath, God forbid. According to their regulations, a person could not carry anything in the street, even so much as a handkerchief, unless that handkerchief was sewn to his clothing. Technically, a person by the rabbinic regulations could only carry the things that they were wearing, which would put this man in our story today in serious violation of these man-made regulations, which is why they say to him, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your sleeping bag. Observe how this man answers these religious leaders in verse 11. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And I like this guy's logic because it makes a lot of sense. In this man's thinking, if a person has the spiritual authority to cure him of his sickness of 38 years and make him miraculously able to walk again, then whoever this healer is ought to be obeyed. And if that healer tells him to pick up his pallet and walk, then that's what this man is going to do. And that's what he tells these religious leaders he's doing. He's saying, hey, I am just following instructions from the one who healed me. Which, by the way, was something that none of these religious leaders could have ever done for him. Well, now these religious leaders really want to know about this person who 
healed him and told him to carry his sleeping bag on the Sabbath. So look at verses 12 and 13. So they asked him, who is this man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. No doubt now feeling very awkward, this man has to say, actually, I don't know who it was who healed me. I never got his name because Jesus had slipped away before this man could even ask. So at first blush, it seems that Jesus has done the shrewd thing to sneak off without identifying himself. By slipping away like this, Jesus seems to have spared himself a whole lot of trouble, right? But this story is not over. For what Jesus is going to do next is he's going to go out of his way to make sure that this man knows who he is and that through this man, the religious leaders would know who he is. And this brings us to the fifth development in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man. Number five, Jesus tends to the man's spiritual condition, telling him to stop sinning. Jesus tends to this man's spiritual condition, telling him to stop sinning. Observe what happens in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, in other words, found the man he had healed, in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The fact that Jesus is said to have found this man in the temple indicates that Jesus was looking for him. And of all places, Jesus was looking for this man in the temple, probably knowing that this man would show up there to worship God and give thanks to God for his healing. Before, when this man was lame, he was not allowed into the temple proper, but now he is. And Jesus looks for this man and finds him in the temple and look at the text. When Jesus finds him, he says to him, first words out of his mouth, Behold, behold, you have become well. Just that word behold is Jesus' way of expressing joy and happiness over seeing this man and seeing him walking and physically whole. And when Jesus speaks these words to this man, He's reminding this man of the startling miracle of what this man has now become physically. He was once sick and now he is well. He was once lame and now he can walk. And Jesus doesn't want this man to forget that he has been made well. Nor does he want this man to lose his sense of amazement over this miracle. I think if Jesus ran into us who have been saved by him, upon seeing us, he would say, Behold, you have become a new creation. Behold, you have become accepted in the beloved. Behold, you have been saved and justified and had all of your sins cleansed and forgiven. Behold, you have become redeemed and baptized into the body of Christ. Jesus, upon encountering us, would always be reminding us of the truth about ourselves given all that he has done for us. And this is what he does for this man here, saying to him, behold, you have become well. Whenever Jesus does a miracle in a person's life, he always sees that person through the lens of that miracle. But in speaking to this man, Jesus does not stop here. He then says to the man, do not sin anymore. Literally, the Greek here has Jesus saying, stop sinning. 
so that nothing worse happens to you. This speaks of actions that this man was engaging in that Jesus is commanding him to stop. Stop sinning. Jesus' language here indicates that this man was evidently continuing in the very sin that had led to his getting sick and lame in the first place. And Jesus is commanding him to cease from such sin. The Bible teaches us that all sickness is, generally speaking, the result of sin that has come into this world. But the Bible nowhere teaches that a person's physical sickness is always the result of some particular sin. For this reason, we need to be careful about making such an assumption about somebody that is experiencing sickness, kind of like Job's friends were guilty of doing with Job as they looked upon him and his condition. Later in John's gospel, we're going to encounter a man who was born blind, and Jesus' disciples will say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. And then he'll explain that that man was given that condition to glorify God. So though the Bible does not in any way teach that whenever a person becomes sick, that's automatically the result of a particular sin in their life, the Bible does teach that sometimes it does happen that a person becomes sick due to a specific sin in his life. In 1 Corinthians 11, we learn that some of the Corinthians had fallen sick as a result of their sinful abuse of the Lord's Supper. And here in John 5, it seems that this man's sickness was tied to a particular sin in his life. And it seems that this sin is persisting even beyond the physical healing. So Jesus approaches this man in love and basically says, behold, I have made you well physically and blessed you in doing so. Stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you. The something worse that Jesus is speaking about here could be a, a reference to a worse physical condition than what this man originally suffered from for 38 years. But the something worse could also refer to eternal damnation, which is far worse than any bodily suffering that a person might experience in this life. Either way, Jesus' command to this man to stop sinning would have given this man tremendous hope in assuring him that he truly can stop sinning in whatever way he was sinning. Because again, if Jesus could command this man to get up and pick up his pallet and walk, and this man could actually do those previously impossible things that Jesus commanded him to do, and now this same healer, Jesus, is commanding him to stop sinning, well, then this man would know that it's possible for him to truly and actually put aside his sin and to cease from engaging in it. I hope this man thought this way and took Jesus' words to heart. Whether he did or not, one thing we learn about Jesus here is that Jesus cares about the whole person, not just caring about a person's body. And bodily condition. Jesus heals this man's body and now he tends to this man's spiritual condition, also teaching us that sometimes it is wise for us to tend to a person's pressing physical needs first before we address their spiritual needs. We also know that as a part of tending to this man's spiritual condition, Jesus reveals who he is. Jesus reveals his identity to this man 
And we know this because of what happens next, which brings us to the sixth development in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man. Let's word it this way. Number six, the Jewish religious leaders persecute Jesus for his dealings with this man on the Sabbath. The Jewish religious leaders persecute Jesus for his dealings with this man on the Sabbath. Observe what John says in verse 15. After Jesus says, stop sinning so that nothing worse will happen to you, and then Obviously, in the context of that conversation, though it's not recorded, revealing his identity to this man, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews, he told the religious leaders, that it was Jesus who made him well. Now, some commentators view what this man is doing right now as a betrayal of Jesus, but I'm not so sure that it is. If you look back in verse 12, you'll notice that the religious leaders had asked this man about who had told him to pick up his pallet and walk. But here this man is telling them that it was Jesus who made him well. He's not even answering the question that they had asked him. The religious leaders were focused on the Sabbath-violating instructions that were given. This man's report to them is focused on the healing that he had received from Jesus. That doesn't sound to me like a guy ratting Jesus out. He seems to really want to make known who it was that had healed him of his 38-year affliction. Whatever his motives were, observe what John says in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Notice the precise language of the text here. They persecute Jesus because he was doing these things, plural, on the Sabbath. The question is, what are these things, plural, that Jesus is doing that they're finding fault with? At the very least, we know from this passage that Jesus has done two things that have angered these religious leaders. Number one, we earlier learned that he had told this man to carry his pallet on the Sabbath, and that bothered these religious leaders And now, number two, we see that they're upset that Jesus would dare to heal a man on the Sabbath. Jesus doing these two things makes these religious leaders angry enough to launch a campaign of persecution against Jesus, which is just crazy to me. Jesus does this astounding thing wonderful, gracious miracle of making this man whole after 38 years of sickness. And rather than rejoicing in this miracle, these Jewish religious leaders are now persecuting Jesus because he offended their rabbinic guidelines regarding the Sabbath. What a dark place their hearts are in that they would ignore this miracle and the beauty of it and prioritize their man-made Sabbath regulations over Jesus. To understand their anger to some degree, you should probably realize that the religious leaders did have very litigious guidelines about Sabbath behavior, even when it came to the matter of healing. Not all rabbis felt this way, but one famous rabbi In ancient times, Rabbi Shammai actually taught that a Jew should not even pray a prayer for healing on the Sabbath day. Again, not all rabbis agreed with him on that, but one rabbi who was very influential did. Every rabbi agreed that a person should be very careful 
to abstain from even trying to administer healing to themselves on the Sabbath day. For example, if you live during this day and you had a toothache on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to gargle vinegar on the Sabbath for your toothache. But they did say that if you are eating a meal on the Sabbath and you happen to dip your bread in some vinegar and partake during that Sabbath meal, and that ends up helping your toothache by accident, well, then that's okay. Yet here is Jesus and that kind of climate performing a full-on deliberate healing of this man from his sickness and from his lameness, and then having him, telling him to pick up his sleeping bag and carry it around, amounting to two serious infractions of Sabbath law that are causing these Jewish leaders to burn with anger and to launch a campaign of persecution against Jesus. Sometimes when people might react to us in a situation like this, our first thought is, how can I calm things down? That's not the way Jesus thinks. Uh, Jesus is actually now going to make matters worse with what he does next, which brings us to the seventh and the final development in John's account of how Jesus brings trouble upon himself by ministering to a sick man. The issues of the religious leaders up to this point are that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and told this man to carry his pallet on the Sabbath. But their problem with Jesus is about to become much bigger than that. Development number seven, we'll word it this way, Jesus makes the religious leaders even angrier by equating himself with God. Jesus makes the religious leaders even angrier by equating himself with God. Observe what happens in verse 17. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. This is such a shocking statement by Jesus on a couple different levels. First of all, he refers to God as my father something that no Jew of his day would do. The Jews of this day did not often refer to God as father, but if they ever did, they would speak of God as being the father of the Jewish nation as a whole. But here, Jesus is referring to God, speaking to Jews, he's referring to God as my father, talking as if he had some unique relationship with the Father that even these other Jews did not enjoy. As we're going to see in the next verse, these religious leaders will interpret such language from Jesus as Jesus making himself equal to God. But what is just as staggering is what Jesus actually says in the sentence. Again, look at the text. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. The first part of this statement is something that every religious Jew totally agreed with. Yes, God rested from his creation work on the Sabbath, but every Jew knew that God still works to sustain the world, and God still actively rules over all creation, even on Sabbath days. He has to, for without God doing such sovereign providential work on the Sabbath day, the universe would fall apart and not survive. Every Jew agreed with this. Imagine if we lived in a world where God did not providentially and actively rule over the world on the Sabbath day. He has totally took the day off and did absolutely nothing. We would never survive a split second. So every Jew, every religious Jew understood that God worked on the Sabbath day, but that's okay because he's God. And no Jew would have questioned God the Father's right to heal someone on the Sabbath. 
if they had heard the news that this man just somehow miraculously was made well and God did it, the Jews would have had no problem with that at all. God can do whatever he wants. He's God. Yet here Jesus is saying, my father is working and I myself am working. Jesus is saying that because he is in unique and special relationship with the Father as the unique Son of God the Father. Anything that applies to His Father also applies to Him. His Father works on the Sabbath, as every Jew would have agreed with, which means that Jesus is entitled to do whatever work on the Sabbath that He deems appropriate especially if it entails him carrying out the Father's will and giving healing to a lame man. Now, Jesus in this moment could have given a different answer to these religious leaders. He could have criticized their silly Sabbath regulations and argued that Jesus is not violating the actual Old Testament law in doing what he has done, but Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he chooses to go here. And in saying what he says here, Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet and picking a fight that he knows will eventually culminate in his crucifixion on the cross. Observe how the Jewish religious leaders respond in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The fact that John now says that they're seeking all the more to kill him indicates that they were wanting to kill him before because he had healed this man on the Sabbath, but now they're wanting even more to kill Jesus because he is calling God his own father, and he's speaking as if he's equal to God. This response on their part will provoke from Jesus an extended reply that we'll see in the coming verses, and we'll look at his reply next Sunday, but we'll stop right here on this ugly note for today. But here's the thing we all need to keep in mind as we wrap things up this morning. Jesus knows what's going on, and he knows that in healing this man, he would be bringing massive trouble on himself. Yet he heals this man anyway. Jesus knows that doing what he does for this man will set in motion a chain of events that will lead to his crucifixion on the cross, yet Jesus even knowing that, chooses to do this miracle anyway. If Jesus wanted to avoid persecution, he could have just decided to keep this miracle anonymous. He could have done that. Or he could have decided to just wait till the next day to heal this man. Or waited till sundown of the Sabbath when it would no longer be the Sabbath. After all, this man had been sick for 38 years. Surely this man could have waited till sundown or waited one more day. What's the hurt of waiting another day to avoid some trouble? But Jesus deliberately chooses to heal this man on the Sabbath day, knowing that he would stir up needed trouble in doing so. We should not learn from Jesus' example to go picking unnecessary fights with this world or with other people. But we do learn from Jesus that sometimes some fights are worth fighting, especially when those fights are brought to us. And let me identify one of those fights that's coming to us. We live in a day in which our world, the power brokers of this world, are legislating all sorts of man-made regulations 
regarding sexuality and gender. And these regulations are being advanced and advocated by powerful people with a religious zeal that would rival the most ardent religious fundamentalist. And the day is coming, and now is, when Christians who dare to violate these expectations will stir up trouble and bring persecution upon themselves. In such moments as this, we learn from Jesus here that we must obey God rather than man, and we must do the right thing, even if that results in us being persecuted. Jesus didn't back away from a necessary fight that was brought to him, and neither should we, even if it means that we get persecuted, even if it means that people will now hate us as much as they hate Jesus. But in Jesus' case, we see the heart of Jesus revealed here. Jesus came into this world in order to be lifted up in death upon a cross for the sins of those who would believe in him. And here in this story, Jesus deliberately sets in motion the events which will culminate in that death that he came to die. Jesus does this willingly, knowing that through his death on the cross, he would provide salvation and atonement for sinners like you and me who believe in him. And in our passage today, as we're reading through the Gospel of John and studying this gospel, we see the beginnings of Jesus embracing that destiny. Jesus was willing to heal this man, even knowing it would ultimately lead to his death on the cross. And Jesus came to this earth to save you from eternal damnation, even though he knew that doing so would cost him his life. This is the love of Jesus for you and for me. But he comes to you this morning and I think he asked you the same question that he asked this man at the pool of Bethesda. Do you wish to be made well? Do you wish to be made well? Do you wish to be made physically whole in the resurrection and in the age to come? Do you wish to be made free of your sin in the here and now and free from the guilt of your sin and the power of sin? Do you wish to be made well, body, soul, and spirit? Or do you wish to remain in your sins and hold on to the sickness of your soul? How would you answer that question this morning. If you do wish to be made well, believe in Jesus this morning and call upon his name. Jesus didn't come for those who were healthy. He says, I came for the sick. And if you're spiritually sick, guess what? That means you qualify for Jesus, because that's who he came for. If you are a sinner, the good news is you qualify for Jesus because he came into the world to save sinners. Believe in Jesus and call upon his name this morning, and you can, upon believing in him and being saved and forgiven and embraced by him, you can begin an amazing journey of healing today because Jesus not only has the power for time and eternity to give you spiritual healing on every level, but he literally came into this world and died to be the one who makes you well. 
And who else loves you like that? Let's pray together. Lord, we prayed as Justin Chow was leading us before this message to we asked of you that you would show us Christ and you have shown us Christ. We thank you for this passage that treats us to a deeper and greater glimpse of our precious Savior who cares about us body, soul, and spirit and who knows that our true cure requires his own death and yet he was willing to embrace that and lay down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this. That one lay down his life as Jesus has done. If there's anyone in this room, Lord, that has never believed in Jesus and called upon his name, touch their hearts that they would do so this morning and begin their journey of transformation with the Lord Jesus who is so beautiful, so kind, and so good, and so powerful in every way. And help us as a church to not only walk in the good of what Jesus has done in miraculously saving us who are believers, but may we be faithful to go and tell others about this one who is making us well. And use our testimony, Lord, to draw many to our Savior, in whose name we pray and all God's people said.